0: You're listening to Canada's Court, the
1: first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. My name is Julia
2: Kushner, and I'm a trial and appellate lawyer at the law firm Lafontaine & Associates in Toronto. Her Majesty the Queen, and William Victor Schneider. Following a jury trial, the respondent, William Victor Schneider, was convicted of second-degree murder contrary to Section 231, Subsection 1, and following the close of the Crown's case, pled guilty to interfering with a body after death contrary to Section 182, Subsection B of the Criminal Code. Before the Court of Appeal for British Columbia, the appellant submitted that the murder conviction should be set aside and a new trial ordered, arguing, among other things, that the trial judge erred in admitting statements made during a telephone conversation overheard by his brother. A majority of the Court of Appeal allowed the appeal and ordered a new trial on the count of second-degree murder. The majority found that the utterances were not logically relevant as they lacked sufficient context for the jury to be able to determine their meaning. One justice of the Court of Appeal dissented the Crown appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada as of right.
3: Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of Her Majesty the Queen against William Victor Schneider, for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Mary T. Ainsley, QC, and Liliane Y. Benturakis. For the respondent, William Victor Schneider, Christopher Nolan, Thomas Arbogast, QC, and Catherine, Catherine Kirkpatrick. Ms. Ainsley,
4: Chief Justice, Justices, the Crown is before this Honourable Court today to ask that the Court of Appeals order for a new trial be overturned and the respondent's conviction for second-degree murder be reinstated. The respondent's brother, Warren, testified at the trial that he heard the respondent say, in a conversation with his wife, words to the effect of, "I did it.
5: I That's not. That's her. not what he said. That's not what he said. He said it was his feeling. That he was admitting to the missing Japanese student's death. He doesn't know what was said.
4: Yes, certainly the interpretation of the evidence that was before the trial judge as to what Warren was saying the respondent said on the call is an issue. And I I do intend to get to that in in further detail.
5: Okay, well, let's not misrepresent
4: that. What he's saying is that he he heard his brother say words to the effect of, I did it, I killed her. And if we can go to, um, well, perhaps if I can just uh, summarize a little bit further my overview, and I will definitely go to the evidence uh, of uh, Warren, what he testified to, because, of course, that's the main issue in this case. This is a very fact-driven case. And the trial judge who heard Mr. Uh, Schneider testify, who heard Warren testify, saw the manner in which he was giving evidence very um emotional evidence and uh important um evidence vis-a-vis his own brother uh held that it was capable of interpretation madam justice uh, dewitt van ustin in dissent correctly identified in the crown submission that the respondents overheard statement was capable of interpretation interpretation by the trier of fact and therefore properly before the jury. The appellant's position is that the majority was wrong in finding there was no logical relevance. The gist of the conversation that Warren heard did not need to be verbatim or a complete account of the one side of the conversation. The dissenting judge in paragraph 78 and further other reasons identified the context or circumstances that could inform warren's evidence about what the respondent said to his wife during the telephone this was a highly charged emotional time period between the two brothers
6: miss ainsley isn't the starting point that uh, the paragraph seven of the uh, trial judges ruling having uh, heard the evidence of the voir said or having heard uh, participating in the voir said it's i did it or i killed her so we start from the premise that it's one of the two and then meaning is given to that but it's not I don't have any idea what was said. It was to the effect of the starting point is paragraph seven with those two options. And then the specific meaning to be given to it is later elaborated upon.
4: Yes. And in fact, at trial, the, the or actually was, was dropped. Even the testimony between both the voir dire and the trial uh, uh, changed, but certainly I would submit that uh, the crown would submit that it is the words that he said he heard, and his own frankness with respect to the fact that he could not recall the exact words. That is uh, does not mean that the evidence was not capable of interpretation.
5: On the basis of his feeling,
4: he 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 heard words, and he understood them to mean his brother was uh, accepting responsibility, admitting responsibility for the the offense. Now, again, as noted by the dissent, this is the larger, this is the, the context, there's a larger context in which those words were said.
5: Well, before we get to the context, do you see a distinction between his account of what was said and a situation where a witness says, I don't recall what was said in I don't recall what was said exactly but I do recall the substance of those words right as distinct from I don't recall what was said but my feeling about those words were in as follows is that is that are these distinct cases or are these the same kinds of cases
4: well, he is uh, uh, he is uh, he is identifying words were spoken, and he's, he says he says a number of things. He said he heard he was there for the entire conversation, but did not remember it all. He said uh, uh, he said that he um, uh, recalled uh, the first part very clearly that the telephone call was relating to Ms. Kagawa's uh, the missing student, and then he heard in the context of what he was being asked about at this trial, then he heard one other statement, and it was, I did it, I killed her. And then he's questioned further as to whether he could recall the exact words, and he frankly acknowledged he could not. So this is an individual who's testifying with... The familiar familiarity with the speaker, both as a uh, family member, and both because they have been together in this period of time, and he has been making other statements. Recall that they have the conversation the night before, where um, he uh, uh, he's asked about the respondent is asked about the RCMP missing person bulletin he told his brother it was true. He told his brother he knew Ms. Kogawa had been with her and that on their last date they had taken medication. After the respondent said these things, he appeared to his brother to be remorsefully sad, glad to get it off his chest. The next morning, the respondent told his brother he wanted to commit suicide. He told his brother the body was located at the construction site. He said it was in a suitcase by necessary implication, she's obviously deceased. He never said it was an accident. He never said he did not know how he died. The brother heard his, 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 the respondent make statements all to do with his involvement in the death of Ms. Kagawa. Then he hears his brother make a statement to his wife on the phone, which, again, was a statement regarding responsibility for the death of Ms. Kagawa. Through the words and conduct of the respondent that day, observed by the brother and testified at trial, to to which he testified at trial, the respondent was demonstrating culpability for a wrongful act that caused the missing woman's death. Death. The Crown argued at trial, and the jury could readily infer that the respondent was reluctant to fully explain his actions to his brother. He didn't want to explain them to his father or his wife necessarily directly, but he was implicitly willing to take responsibility for them. Oh. So this is the... Collective context in which the jury is given statements made by the respondent. It's not simply a stranger. It's not simply a police officer or a sheriff in a van or bail supervisor. It's not a um, a member of authority overhearing somebody who's in their custody. It's somebody who is intimately familiar and an incredibly intense um, experience with the brother, including him wanting him to be there while he tried to kill himself. And then he hears a statement on the phone when he's speaking to the wife. I did it. I killed her. He made this phone call minutes after an unsuccessful suicide attempt and having revealed the knowledge of where the body lay. He may not have been able to provide the exact words spoken exact word spoken. But he was able to provide reliable evidence of the essence of the words the no gist no, of
5: that. no he no he wasn't he he was he was able to say that his feeling was that he's responsible that 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 his brother's saying that he's responsible for her death
4: he's describing and perhaps um, why don't we go uh, at this stage we can go to uh to uh, in the condensed book, I've exerted uh, Warren Schneider's evidence. If I could start at tab 7, these are photographs of the two. This this gives a, a, a real picture of this snapshot of this in, intense circumstance that was happening that day. And it's a reminder that the trial judge... Heard this evidence and saw Warren testify. She felt it was capable of interpretation by the trier of fact. She, being a trier of fact, she saw the manner in which the evidence was delivered, whether there was uh, um, demeanor or uh, uncertainty or clarity or not with respect to how witnesses testify. Having seen, having seen, Warren testify, she concluded his evidence was capable of interpretation.
5: Sorry, so how do the photographs help us understand the meaning of the statement in the middle of the phone call?
4: It's trying to bring home that with respect to the witness, the dynamic of what was occurring during that whole time they were together, including what the conversation with that was overheard with the wife. Including it is that it was a very emotionally charged uh, a, a moment, and in fact, the brother was testifying about what, having heard what he knew regarding um, mr the respondent 's uh, knowledge of the offense so it 's in this larger piece that he then hears the accused make this statement in a conversation, his last conversation with his wife, Uh, one would assume because he's hoping, the respondent is hoping to kill himself again, immediately following it. So this provides in the Crown submission, just some context and a a reminder as well, that the trial judge heard this witness and would be able to understand the import of his evidence. So at tab uh, nine of the condensed book, Is where we have um, uh, the transcript excerpts and from the voir dire starting at page one thirty five of the appellant's record. At line eighteen is where there is first first questioning regarding the conversation uh, that he overheard. Line twenty, the uh, the Warren says that the respondent asks or says starts the conversation by saying did you see the news of the missing Japanese student yes answer and then he said I did it question and did he say anything else I killed her okay now what was the length of this call several minutes were you present for the entire call I was near yes and then at line 35 10 feet at line 39 I could only hear one side of the conversation, but seemingly a two-way conversation, but I would think he was speaking more than she was. What tone of voice did he use when he said, I did it, I killed her? And then he gives an answer with respect to the uh, respondent's voice, possibly being impacted by uh, uh, opiates. And then the next page, line 12. Okay, and when he said, I did it, or I killed her, were those statements either statements or questions? Answer statements. Question. Okay, now can you remember anything else that was said in the conversation? Answer no. So it's important. I would su- suggest here that he's he's overhearing the conversation and he is saying what he remembers about what he's being questioned about. He's being questioned about the 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 what he overheard. Regarding the respondents' statements about Ms. Kagawa, so he's this is what he remembers as being relevant to the topic that he's being questioned on. And then at line thirty-four on on page one thirty-six, still question: Did you leave for any parts of the conversation? Answer: No. Question: And were you listening to it? Answer: I could hear it. I was not eavesdropping. And then at page one thirty-eight. Is where there's cross examination starting at line 37, and I'm going to suggest to you also don't you've that to you also don't know what exact words were spoken by him. You don't recall that, do you? Answer: Not the full conversation. No, I'm sorry. Answer: Not the full conversation. Well, sir, you don't even know whether he said I did it. And there's further questioning at line at page 140, line 38. Now, that's what you said that day. What did what did you really hear him say? Answer. Well, he said that, did you hear the news or whatever on the missing Japanese student? And the conversation went on for apparently 13 minutes. But I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't eavesdropping, but he said he did it. Okay, we'll go on. That he killed her. And then later, he says, um, at page 141, line 29, again being questioned about his testimony at the preliminary inquiry answer i guess i'll have to go back to the page that's exactly i mean that's what i said there i did it or i killed her but meaning that he's responsible for his death for her death so this is he's being reminded of testimony that he gave at the preliminary inquiry later um later uh as uh, Justice Brown has uh, uh, already noted, at page 143, line 36 is where he's asked, so you don't know the exact words he said, answer, not word for word, but the message that I got, that I got from that was, question, you're feeling about it, answer, yes. And then um, at line, uh, page 144, line 34, well, it is the topic, and we're talking about it. So, I mean, we're talking about a missing Japanese student in a suitcase, drugged. So we were talking about be him, in a sense, being responsible for her death. And then at page 145, is the, um, at line 32, is your feeling about the impression you got. Isn't that really it? Yes. So to the extent that evidence is... Um, uh, impacted by cross-examination from a conflicted, as the Crown argued, conflicted witness giving incriminatory evidence. Yes, there is some some, uh, further clarification, but he is hearing words, not the exact words, and he's being honest about that. Then at tab 10 is where we get to the trial evidence. And the comparison is, is interesting because at this stage, now at this the, the judge has heard and made an assessment of logical relevance. Now this is what the jury hears. And it is the crown submission that this is what this case ought to be decided on, which is what did the jury hear, and how were they instructed regarding it. It's very um, central to the dissenting reasons uh, which the Crown asked this course to endorse that there was such a strong caution and thorough instructions given to the jury so that they had the tools with which to assess this evidence. They saw him testify. They would have sensed whether he was conflicted or not. They would have sensed whether he was backing off incriminatory portions or not. This is that they were there and th- we were not. So they saw him. May I interrupt you there,
7: though? The, the, the caution that was provided by the trial judge was, as you say, uh, quite strong, quite proper, very well done. But if the evidence shouldn't have been admitted at all, what is the relevance to the legal determination about admissibility that there wasn't a, a well-done caution?
4: Well, certainly, and I've included in the um, Crown's factum that it's, it's essentially akin almost to a curative proviso argument, which is if the caution is such that the, jur- the evidence could never have been misused and if the concern about admitting it was that it could be misused? Then, in fact, they're all they're they're essentially uh, related, which is ultimately in the end there's no uh, prejudice by the admission of the evidence. So, and there's a, there are, I've included uh, cases in which um, in which the caution essentially was a, a cure to any concern with respect to the admissibility.
8: Yeah. I'm not sure it's quite as. Uh... I'd say um, free form as that. It seems to me that there's a logical sequence to the questions that need to be answered, and sometimes points are relevant to more than one step in the sequence. But that doesn't mean they're they're less distinct. The first one is is the evidence relevant? Second, is its probative value? Uh, Overborne by its prejudicial effect, such that notwithstanding the fact that it's relevant, it should be excluded. And then the third step in the sequence, it seems to me, was is the jury instruction effective to maintain a proper balance between uh, probative value and prejudicial effect so that uh, it's it's really properly uh, assessed by the jury? And I'm not sure that a good instruction at the end of the sequence allows you to skip uh, steps one and two.
4: The um, the jury instruction is part is is really a part of these steps. So, uh, for example, Justice Giroux says in paragraph 21 of her ruling. Um, the probative value of the evidence outweighs the prejudicial effect that it might be used improperly. The prejudicial effect can be ameliorated by a strong caution of the jury about what use can be made of the evidence. So so again, when one talks about prejudices, is is the evidence going to be misused? How will it be used? And her assessment of to this balancing exercise is that in this case, there is uh, adequate Protection from uh, instruction, and uh, I would submit as I submit as well that this again it's 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 not in dispute that this this is something to which a trial judge uh, is given great uh, deference to the trial judge's assessment as to this balancing of probative value of prejudicial effect. And certainly Justice DeWitt makes that clear in her reasons that, that this is something to which deference is accorded because the importance of the role of the trial judge obviously is as gatekeeper, but part of that job is to assume when the gate is open and the jury is now there What are they doing with the evidence that they've heard? And in this case, we have evidence that is capable of interpretation. The trial judge found it. Justice DeWitt Van Usen in dissent certainly accepted it. In fact, defense counsel must have considered it to be capable of interpretation until the very day that Mr. Warren Schneider was going to testify because he never raised any form of pretrial objection to it. Despite the evidence being led at the preliminary inquiry. And he certainly raised objections to other evidence that the Crown was tendering. So, if we have evidence that is capable of interpretation, then the next question is well, is the jury being properly uh, guided with respect to its use? And this role, these different roles, the judge as gatekeeper and the jury as fact finder, very much inform. the the manner in which the law is developed in this regard. That, and I've set out a number of uh, quotations in the factum with respect to the fact that juries can be trusted to do their job with proper guidance and proper tools. And in this case, they were given it. And furthermore, uh, the instructions um, are also to be considered that this jury was given in light of the submissions of counsel and what the council said with respect to this evidence. So ultimately, in the end, and this in the response, in the appellant, in the crown submission is important that this court is dealing with the record as a whole with respect to this evidence. And in the end, the, the, the concerns of the majority are just not borne out in the crown submission. Now, to return to the, um, the tab 10, which is the actual trial evidence, and this is the condensed book of the appellant at tab 10, page 170. Again, at line 17. Warren is saying that he is approximately 10 feet away within earshot He was close enough to hear what he said. Answer, yes. And then the witness, Warren, recognizes, well, I only heard the one-way conversation at line 37. What did you hear your brother say? Did you hear the news about the missing Japanese student? What else did he say? Line 41, more was said. But the conversation goes for up to 13 minutes. Now halfway through the conversation was when Was he said he did it. He killed her. Well, I did it. I killed her. And that's his answer. And then at the top of page 171, and at this point, I want to be clear with respect to that. The crown asks, Can you say whether they were his exact words or not? No. Are you able to say that that was the gist of the conversation? Answer, perhaps. Question, I'm sorry, perhaps. And he's asked, What do you mean by perhaps? I only heard one side of the conversation. Okay, I'll rephrase that. That was the gist of the conversation you heard from your brother. Yes. Can you remember anything else of, no, what was said at the time? No. So he's being asked, can you remember anything else implicitly about what was said about the missing Japanese student? And then at uh, page 184 of the appellant's record, further under this same tab, I have at line 43 is a question, when you left your brother, and this is a very traumatic time for you, I'm guessing, answer yes. So again, emphasizing the, um, the uh, seriousness of the interaction that he's having with his brother and the degree to which he's in a position to say what he heard his brother saying.
5: Um, I wonder if you could make that the basis for that link between the trauma and his basis for understanding what he's hearing a little more explicit for me. I'm I'm still stuck on... I mean, I assume the trauma point is the same point that you wanted to make in, in referring us to the photographs, and I'm still struggling to understand how those photographs... Help us interpret a later statement where we don't know exactly what was said in the middle of a telephone conversation that he didn't listen in on. Um, so, so can you can you take me back? Is there a photo in particular I need to look at? Is there how does the trauma relate?
4: And perhaps I'm not clear about the the the, the, the photos are are really included just to give um, some context to these are the two brothers and this is this is what they are involved in this very intense tw- less than 24 hour period right and and the reason that matters is because he hears his brother and he's in a position to understand what his brother is saying. He's in a position to hear the tone. And this was certainly one of the points in the Ferris decision that Justice DeWitt Van Oosten distinguished was, was noting that in that case, one of the concerns was that nobody could give any meaning because it was just an overheard statement by a police officer of somebody he doesn't know, he has no familiarity with. It was incapable of being interpreted as an admission. So in this case, we have an individual who is extremely well-suited, extremely well-suited to give evidence because he has been hearing statements from his brother who he knows over this period of time, and then he hears another one during the phone conversation. The phone conversation started with the fact that he 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 mentions to his wife about the missing Japanese student, and then the other thing that Warren testifies he remembers is that he heard his brother say, "I I did it, I killed her." So I just I, I see my time is almost up. I've I've directed the court to uh, the the um, the condensed book and the references there in support of the uh, Crown's submission, that these me- these words <clears throat> were capable of interpretation because this was not a stranger. This was part of an ongoing contextual uh, interaction between two brothers, as very thoroughly set out by Justice DeWitt Van Oosten in her uh, dissenting reasons. The other tab that I have in, uh, one of the other tabs in the condensed books does have the jury charge. And I would ask that this court give great uh, weight to the fact that in, in that jury charge, the jury were given the proper tools to assess this statement, a statement that was provided from someone with intimate knowledge of both the speaker and the circumstances.
3: Thank you very much. Mr. Nolan?
1: All right. Chief Justice, justices, uh, uh, can you hear me?
3: You too. Am I? Go ahead. Oh,
1: thank you. Uh, the position of the uh, respondent is that uh, this honorable court um, can and should dismiss should dismiss this appeal for any for any of the following uh, reasons. Uh, the majority is first. The majority decision correctly decided that whatever uh, the witness uh, W.S. overheard uh, the accused say was inadmissible because it was logically uh, irrelevant. Uh, The second reason being that whatever the witness W.S. overheard was also inadmissible because it was legally irrelevant uh, in the sense that its potential prejudicial effect far outweighed its probative value. Um, A third point uh, is that evidence from the witness W.S. as to the gist of what he overheard was inadmissible opinion evidence, and uh, fourthly, uh, the trial judge inadequately responded to a jury question about the difference between murder and manslaughter. Now, with the time available this morning, we, the respondent, we rely upon our factum in relation to that fourth uh, point I just made about uh, the jury question. Uh, subject, of course, to any questions from this court. Uh, I would, in terms of my colleague and I's division of uh, labor. Uh, I propose to begin by summarizing why the majority decision below correctly concluded uh, that whatever the witness WS uh, overheard was logically and legally irrelevant. On the third point that I'd mentioned, uh, my colleague, Mr. Arbogast, he will outline why the witness WS should not have been permitted to introduce to the jury his opinion about what he overheard and the associated uh, issue around the jury instruction. In essence, I would like to explain why the majority decision below correctly followed and applied the majority decision in Ferris, which this court upheld. And my colleague, Mr. Arbogast, will explain why the evidence that the majority decision ruled inadmissible was inadmissible for reasons independent of Ferris and the Ferris line of cases. So I I really...
5: Can I just uh, just, just interrupt you just so I understand your your four points, um, Mr. Nolan, that... um, you'd accept the view that that the majority decided the matter just on logical relevance, that they didn't didn't say anything to us about legal... I mean, you can draw inferences to to what they might have thought about the speculative character of the evidence or the properly prejudicial effect it might have if it were admitted, but strictly speaking they only decided it on logical logical relevance. Is that, that's
1: correct. I, I agree with that entirely justice Cassier. here. Um, my point simply being is that uh, it's, it's, it's another, it's another reason that this court um, could, could dismiss the appeal is, is my submission that there, that on, uh, on, on the issue of uh, legal relevance, but no, the answer to your question is yes. So, So what i'd like to say then in terms of just briefly on the point of logical irrelevance um, is that that is exactly what justice mr justice gopal in british columbia um, disposed of the appeal on that issue alone Um, his view was that uh, whatever the witness warren schneider had overheard was not logically relevant it had zero probative value and it was therefore inadmissible and that's precisely where he parted company with uh justice de how, how do you,
8: how do you square this with the the low threshold for relevance that is, was set out in erp uh,
1: okay then i will go to that um how i how i respond to that uh justice Rowe, is that uh i believe that in this case in particular i don't know about others uh this uh, this in a sense almost a doctrine that kind of seemed to have come up, or a threshold of some evidence that came up, in, and, and 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 absolutely it came up in Arp. Um, it's it's what I might submit is the the bare minimum for the uh, trial judge to consider actually putting the uh, putting say in this case the 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 overheard utterances to to the jury. Um, what's missing in this case, and, and it's what I've been trying. It's it's what the respondents' factum is trying to articulate by, by drawing this distinction between some evidence and, and a balance and a, and a say a standard of proof of balanced probabilities, is addressed uh, kind of directly head on in a sense in in at least two cases, and I think because of because in response to your question, if if I may draw this court's attention to to a, parag- to, a, to a paragraph from the case Evans, uh, 1993, from this court. Um, I'd refer to it in the Respondent's Factum, a different paragraph, but I think to answer this question very head on, it's important for me to read out one paragraph, which is paragraph 36 of the Evans case, um, to answer this question. And, and so I'll read now from Justice Sipinka uh, directly. Paragraph 36, if there is some evidence to permit the issue to be submitted to the trier of fact, the matter must be considered in two stages. First, a preliminary determination must be made as to whether on the basis of evidence admissible against the accused, the Crown has established on a balance of probabilities that the statement is that of the accused, period. So he goes on to then say, you can now go past the gatekeeper. And Evans was a case about the authenticity of a statement. But in 2008, uh, Justice Rothstein quoted those, those words from Justice Sopinka that I just read out, uh, again, entirely with approval, categorically with approval, and actually made the additional comment. This is in a case uh, from 2008 called RVHL, um, and what he said at paragraph 80 was that that same civil standard on these preliminary questions about the balance, the civil standard of a balance of probabilities, he said that they applied to um, preconditions of admissibility of various types of evidence, such as hearsay, and he actually mentioned similar fact, and he cited ARP, among other cases. Um, in my in, in the respondents factum, we developed that point to to make the point that that it, it also applies to cases such as uh, Mr. Big cases, where the uh, where the reliability of uh, admissions to Mr. Big officers are presumptively presumptively uh, unreliable, if you want to put it that way.
9: Well, isn't isn't that the distinction, though? <clears throat> we're not talking about we're, if we're talking here about Evans and a party admission. There's no some nothing that says they're presumptively inadmissible. You're giving us you're giving us cases that deal with evidence that this court has held is presumptively inadmissible. Here we're starting with something that would be presumptively admissible, and the logical relevance of a party admission can hardly be doubted. So really it seems to me that the relevance point, and this is the point Justice Rowe I think was getting at, is almost a given in a case where you have a party admission You're not into what we call the traditional hearsay evidence rules. You don't have to prove the principled approach to let it in for its truth. You have a party admission. Now, whether or not it should be excluded, as Justice Sopinka determined in Ferris, is another story. But it seems to me that we're talking apples and oranges, even in ARP, which was similar fact evidence, that is presumptively inadmissible.
1: Justice Moldaver, if if I may, with with great respect, uh, in the Mr. Big context, that's a if if I understand you correctly, that's a party admission. A Mr. Big target is is the accused, and he or she is making an admission. And the concern, if if I may, um, in in heart, was that the circumstances around Mr. Big admissions generally. Uh, are have are of dubious reliability, which is why they're considered presumptively, reliable, presumptively unreliable. Um, the general submission well, and let's I've, stop. Let's stop made...
9: there for a second. Why would the brother of the accused here? Why would we start off? They had apparently a, a close, caring relationship. They've been dealing with this issue for several days. One. They're together when one tries to commit suicide. They obviously care very much for each other. Why would one presume that the brother would give evidence that would on its face be harmful to his brother uh, in these circumstances? It doesn't make any sense, and I think that's what your friend was getting at when she tried to show us the pictures and the care that these brothers had for each other. You don't start off and saying, well, he had a motive to implicate his brother in a crime that he didn't commit.
1: No, I, I agree with that. I agree with that last point, uh, Justice Moldaver. Uh, my submission isn't, it doesn't touch on the issue whether he had a motive. In fact, what the, the general logic... Well, that's sorry to, that's to
9: what interrupt what again, but that's what Mr. Big's all, all about. The concern is that the police are giving this person benefits and so on and so forth and 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 sort of playing into the fact that the ultimate accused, the, the, the biggest thing in his or her life is let me join the gang. I want to join the gang, and we're going to give you all kinds of sweeteners and so on. Mm-hmm. You start off with a major concern about reliability when, in fact, you are inducing the person to, the, yeah, I don't disagree
1: with that. Well, uh, the, but that's very different than this. What's What's similar, if, if I may, uh, if what what the respondent is submitting generally is similar, and. and because i can bring in the kgb as well right in kgb we have the same we have the same concern about a young person who's again a uh, the accused who's made an admission and has retracted it so we have a different context from uh, completely from mr big but we still now have the same rule the respondent submission generally about these circumstances it has to do with the reliability of these statements. It doesn't have to do with motive. There may be one reason or another why a statement might be have reliability problems around its circumstances. That's why KGB is different than uh, than Mr. Big uh, and different than Evans, etc. But in this case, what we have is on the on the facts that we have these uttered, we have these fragmented utterances, or I believe what one case calls severed utterances. And so the argument is is that whether it's Mr. Big or KGB or Evans, um, when, when the Crown is attempting to submit some piece of evidence of dubious reliability, and in this case inherently dubious because there is no uh, there is no surrounding uh, words, it's a, it's an overheard one sided conversation. It's inherently it has inherent reliability problems. And this general submission is, and that's why I drew from Evans and then the HL case, is that when, you, when the Crown is seeking to tender a piece of evidence of that, of that nature for, for its truth as an admission, or in some cases a confession, which the, in which the preliminary standard is a criminal standard, um, and again, that's a reliability concern, um, the, entire volunt- the, the whole voir dire process around voluntariness of a confession is the exact same logic I, I respectfully submit. Uh, the common law says we have a concern about uh, involuntary confessions, so we're going to have a voir dire about them. Mr. And Nullin, the standard of proof of...
0: Mr. Nullin, uh in paragraph 205, the majority says that uh, what is missing in this case and in Ferris is uh, any micro-context. So uh, I'm trying to find in everything which has been written on the law of evidence uh, where we have to make a distinction between macro-context and micro-context in order to make a determination of relevance? And is support in the law of evidence for such a distinction? Because in saying that, the majority seems to acknowledge that there was a macro-context. But why should we have that distinction between macro and micro-context to determine if something is relevant?
1: Yes, um well, because I think when, if if we're to speak generally about macro and micro context, I I I, I might ag- I might agree, uh, Justice Cote that uh, that uh, it's hard to draw a line, and uh, certainly it's hard to draw a bright line in that respect. But I think when it comes to the uniqueness or the distinctness of of, uh, of statements, in particular, as a piece of evidence, is certainly one that the Crown is presenting to the to, wishes to present to the jury as as an admission, which um, which is. Most likely dispositive when it comes to statements i, I 'm submitting that they 're they're, they're a special animal in, in the sense that, especially when you have a fragment, which I believe is what the concern was in in the Ferris case you've you 've got these fragments or severed, severed words out of you know what what, what Just, Mr. Justice Gopal focused in on, and as did Justice Conrad and Ferris was the fact that what the witness is being asked is to kind of interpolate okay or interpret the entire sentence when they don't know what that sentence is and that's that's really how that's that's the narrow sense in which mr justice gopal treats micro context so i think what i'm I'm, what i'm trying to say is that perhaps more generally speaking in terms of how the common law is in in canada that there's maybe no bright line between macro and micro context in this kind of linguistic context if you want to go further
8: than to say there's no bright line i've never heard of it I, this seems like something they cooked up, which is really, I think, what's behind Justice Cote's comment.
1: Well, uh, Justice Rowe, uh, I, I'm, I'm reluctant. To, I'm, I'm most reluctant to say it's been cooked up. It's, uh, it's in my respectful submission, it's a valid distinction on on the specifics of this type of and this type of fact pattern, where what we have is not. You know, uh, we don't have a kind of a piece of circumstantial evidence in this case. What we have is an utterance for which, um, which maybe I should come to this point, um, which for which the true or definitive meaning cannot be ascertained. Um, much is much is uh, made by my learned friend about you know, and and and, and uh, in the dissenting justice and by and by the trial judge around this standard about something being capable of interpretation, and the respondent's submission. Throughout has been that a careful read of Ferris of justice conrad's decision of Ferris shows that what she 's really getting at is she's getting at is is the utterances are they capable of the is the witness capable of interpreting the true meaning or there's another expression she uses that's capable of the definitive meaning, and to get to that involves speculation. And that's because there is no micro-context. Uh, all that Justice Gopal means by the micro-context, I think he's quite clear about it, is that the, the, the witness W.S. did not hear, and admittedly so, any of the words that might, per, might have preceded I did it, if that's even what he overheard, or any of the words that might have uh it. Antece- uh, so the way, the
5: way I read these kind of micro-macro-context ma- references is, is reflective of a different... Yes, field of vision when it comes to what is is relevant context in trying to give meaning to the statement. And so uh, the dissenting justice at the Court of Appeal looked further afield, like the Crown does, right, look at the photos, look at the trauma, look at this, look at that, that occurred in the previous few hours, whereas um, the majority was Concerned more with the circumstances of the call itself, and and did not think that looking further was helpful. I, that's how I understood it, and is, is that a fair kind of way of looking at it?
1: Yes, I, I I agree with that. I think one of the things I'm trying to say is one doesn't. Justice Gopal could have made his exact same point as he as he did without using the word micro context. In fact, he also used the word macro context, and. Justice DeWitt, Justice DeWitt Van Oosten had used the word kind of like I think the greater context so uh, so I don't think he had done anything um, uh, you know untoward or novel in this he's just he's just he, like I say he's zoned in on on a couple of um, key 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 parts of, of of the evidence in question being antecedent and, and the precedent. and and uh, you know we just his Justice Gopal's reasoning in my mind is to something to the effect that it's very plausible that, uh, that the accused could have been saying on the phone, um, they are saying, I did it. You know, he's been talking to his brother about it. Um, they are saying, I did it, but I didn't. Um, they're saying that I killed her, but I didn't. And, and we have to remember that uh, the witness WS still actually can't be sure about that. So, so um, the other point that I was going to make on that, and then, and then I'll quickly leave, uh, leave off for my, for my colleague, is that the other thing you can't do with, if, if we're going to use the word the greater context, for example, as, as, you, as you suggested, uh, as, as Justice DeWitt Van Osten suggested, is that that greater context cannot be built on inadmissible opinion evidence. So that's a real problem in this case, is that, is that part of what's being treated as the macro kind, of greater or macro context is actually inadmissible Evidence that—that's actually the issue. That's that's and that and Justice Mr. Justice Gopal zoned in on that in the later part of his judgment. Um, uh, so because he he, he he drew he he quoted he quoted from the um, the j- j- jury instructions having to do with the admissibility of the opinion evidence, and then he followed that along and, and basically said you cannot build the ma- the macro context based on that. So. So that's, that's my submissions on that because what I, I'd like to leave my colleague, Mr. Arbogast, some time to speak to the opinion, opinion uh, aspect and the, and the jury instructions. But my only, my only submission then before I leave off on that was simply that should this court actually find that the, the evidence in question was logically uh, relevant, then it's the respondent's position, as, as I've iterated already, that it was definitely legally irrelevant. Um, the prejudicial effect of it Uh, far outweighed its probative value. It's not like a piece of circumstantial evidence. Uh, Justice Conrad had made that point in Ferris. Um, The jury was being asked by the Crown to treat these fragments um, as an admission, which would realistically be dispositive of the case. And their inclination, which was the concern of Justice Conrad and Mr. Justice Gopal, their inclination would be to find that the accused uh, was guilty based on guesswork or speculation. Um... If I am correct, this is the, this is the general logic on which uh, Justice Sipinka up, upheld Ferris. Um, subject, to any, subject to any questions in that respect, I, I would, I would uh, turn it over to my colleague, Mr. Arbogast. Thank you. Marianne, no? I have
0: a question for you, if you permit me, no. <laughs> Justice. Uh, about the prejudice, what um, importance should we give, if any, uh, to the fact that uh, other inculpatory statements... Um, raising similar prejudice uh, have been uh, properly admitted in this case. Like, and I mean the statements to the police, uh, the statement to the father. So yeah. is there uh, any weight to be given to that when we analyze the second uh, branch of the ferry uh, test?
1: If, if I understand your uh, question correctly, uh, Justice Cote, my I think my answer is no. I just want to make sure I understand your question. The way that I would put it is, is this, that... Uh, the prejudice, independently, like in this, with this particular evidence, is is, is the type of prejudice, kind of in, in terms of uh, uh, distracting di- uh, that kind of di- both distra- uh, reasoning and, and and the kind of moral prejudice that gets discussed in the case of Andy. This this uh, this kind of inclination. I mean, the way that Justice Gopeland, Justice De DeWitt explained explain it is this idea of kind of coming backwards, like saying, well, you know, maybe because there's some there's already some incriminatory evidence in the case. Maybe that maybe that helps. Maybe that helps give give it helps Warren interpret or le- leads Warren to interpret the whatever he overheard as an admission. And th- and that's the concern that the jury would do the same thing. So I don't know that the other the other statements made by the accused would have any bearing on on like on if I understand correctly on the legality of that point. I think it's just, I think it's an independent concern. If I can put it out.
0: Thank you. You understood my question properly.
1: Okay. okay. Thank you, Mr.
3: Thank you. Nolan. Mr. Arbogast.
10: Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, <clears throat> the conundrum in the Crown's case here is that, on one hand, the Crown is trying to impute that there were exact words, but there were no exact words here. And the issue, I say, is that um, the evidence from this witness was neither gist nor impression in the legal sense, it was an opinion and the idea that it was an admission was essentially manufactured and i'd like to pick up on a point that justice brown brought up about this idea of the concept of gist and impression in a broader sense and it appears that that idea really applies to cases where there were recollection or a lack of recollection but that something was actually heard in various cases. And in this case, it's really important to note that the the concept that there were exact words never actually occurred. And so there are three pillars to this argument. The first one is that it's important to recognize that there were no actual words heard. The witness resiled from making that From giving that evidence. And yet what we have here, and this is point number two, the actual words were imputed by the trial judge that could be interpreted by the trier of fact. The third point is that it appears that the concept that it was an opinion was actually troubling the trial judge, and the Court of Appeal picked up on this. And to the earlier point that this case was about logical reven- relevance in the Court of Appeal. That is correct. But the Court of Appeal also had some concerns. This is the majority of the Court of Appeal about the idea that an opinion was being brought into this case in terms of the, the
6: jury instructions. And why was that there? And so. Um, Isn't paragraph 16 of the oral ruling on the voir dire a finding, though, that it was one of the two? isn't that's the way i read it it was one of the the two statements it wasn't um i don't remember what was said the gist was of these two statements it was rather um it was one of these two statements um i don't know the exact words the gist was as follows
10: yes and 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 i say that's where the problems began in terms of what how can it be imputed that that those were the exact words when those words were actually resiled from. And those words were then sort of created by this idea that, yes, it was stated by this witness in direct evidence. And this is frankly a case that shows that cross-examination is extremely important because cross-examination brought the evidence back to some state where the witness actually stated, no, I cannot remember the exact words. And so how can we then impute that he stated that exa- those exact words or the gist of those words when it wasn't like he re- he stated, oh, I, I probably heard something like that, but I can't recall now. He had a very clear recollection of what happened in the um, that situation where he overheard the phone call. And so what I say, and uh, I'd like to take this to a point that Justice Rowe brought up about the three steps of relevance um, probative versus prejudicial value and then the instruction i say there's actually a predicate step with certain types of evidence that the court has to evaluate and that predicate step is does the evidence in question reach a threshold over which then we engage in a relevance analysis and that is the issue of opinion when you have evidence that has come out, as such as in this case, it is an, and it appears to be an opinion as opposed to based in actual evidence, that's something that's clearly inadmissible in law. And that goes to an issue that the Court of Appeal actually addressed in the reasons. And in the reasons at paragraph 180, and this is at page 61 of the appellant's um, uh, record, Um, at paragraph 80, Justice uh, Gopel actually speaks about this. He says that the problem that arises from not knowing the exact words is highlighted by the jury charge in this regard. The judge told the jury, and then I'll go down to um, sub 86. Another witness's opinion as to what Mr. Schneider meant by his words is irrelevant to the question of what he meant. It is it is your job and your job alone to decide the meaning of Mr. Schneider's words if you, said, if you find he said them. There can be no finding that Mr. Schneider said those words on the basis of the evidence. That was not up for debate here. This wasn't a case where you had an issue relating to credibility, where it was argued that, well, maybe he said them and the other side said he didn't say them. He but, clearly but resiled you-
7: and ret- can I bring you, if you you look at the, the page 887 and the transcript, and I think I know the part that you're, you're talking about here, where in cross-examination, there's a question, what did he actually say, though, the exact words, yes. I don't know the exact words, but that was the conversation. So I, is that what you're relying upon to say that there was no... Um, no acknowledgement of the exact words, because if it is, I guess what I'm going to ask you is, is, is this paragraph really saying that, or is it this answer saying, as between the two formulations— that I've already testified to, the uh, I did it or I killed her, I can't recall the exact words between those two formulations or I can't recall the exact words in an overall sense even as to whether he said I did it or I killed her.
10: I say it's the latter, Justice Martin, in terms of the—and the, it came out a number of times in the evidence. And it's in our—for instance, in the factum, um, the respondent's factum, at paragraphs 24 and 25, where even on the, um, the Crown's evidence and then in the defense evidence in a number of areas, um, the witness W.S. states and acknowledges that he cannot um, remember any exact wording— and so it, didn't, it wasn't a matter of um, I did it or I killed her. It was all of the wording together. There was no specificity in those wordings. And that is why I say that it did not meet the predicate step that this was an opinion.
5: So when you talk about the Thank opinion, um, I'm, I'm kind of looking, I guess, pages 144, 145 of the transcript. So question or answer, word for word, I don't know the exact words. Question, well, you don't know the words at all, do you? Answer word for word, no question. Well, when you say word for word, what do you mean? So are we getting into the opinion here? Is this what you're referring to? In a sense, answer, in a sense, it seemed like he was admitting to the missing Japanese student's death. And then about nine or 10 lines down, there's the section that that your friend already referred us to. It was your feeling about the impression you got, isn't that really an answer? Yeah, yes. Is, that, are, are, is this the opinion section?
10: Yes, exactly. Okay, That All
5: is right. the opinion.
10: Thank
3: you, Justice Brown. Thank you very much. Any reply, uh, Ms. Ainsley?
4: No, thank you.
3: I'd like to thank counsel for their submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Canada's Court. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.